Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to gather together this evening. Lord, I thank you that though we don't know a lot of people in this room necessarily, that we are all joined uh, in our faith in you, our interest in you, and our curiosity about who you are. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be clear and vocal and speak to us this evening, uh, both as individuals but also collectively as a church, about your will and your heart for us. In your name, amen. Well, hey, all. <clears throat> Good evening. Very excited to be talking about taste today because clearly I like food, right? Um, you're probably going to want to pull out your Bible, however you find that, because we're going to be in John 6 a lot, and it's all over the place. So if you have one, great. If you don't, there should be one right in front of you or under your seat, depending on where you're at. Food is such a big deal. We think about it all the time, really. I mean, at least every four to six hours, but realistically, and no shame, because I have, I will raise my hand already, who's already thought about what you're going to eat this week? Like for lunches, see, that's a long ways away, and we've already thought about it. We think about food all of the time, right? Multiple times throughout the day, uh, what we're going to eat, how it's going to balance with what else you've been eating this week so that you continue to feel better or start to feel better. Uh, what did you eat yesterday to maybe explain why you're fe how you're feeling today? And then also, you know, think about like, well, what am I hungry for? Not just like I'm hungry and so I need to eat, but what do I want to eat, right? What do I feel like eating? We think about eating all the time. We think about food all the time and not just thinking about us and our own food. I mean, really, food is a huge part of hospitality, right? It conveys to others that you've been thinking about them as well. You think to yourself, oh, someone's coming over. How can I help them feel a little bit more comfortable? Well, I'll make a spread. I'll make sure that their blood sugar doesn't get low so we have a better visit than if they didn't. So we think about food and others. We think about it in terms of how to impress people too, right? When your friends are coming over, you might throw some crackers on the table and be like, help yourself, you know where the fridge is. But when people come over who you really want to impress, you like plan the food, right? If your mother-in-law, whomever is coming over, you're like, oh my gosh. I guarantee you if I ever give you food at all, it's because I'm actively trying to impress you. It is such an effort for me that I've probably made it two or three times to make sure that it's good. I'm like trying really hard, so please make a big deal about it because it is a Christmas miracle in and of itself. So there are things that escalate too, the way that we think about food. Like, of course, we think about food all the time, but then things happen that escalate it, factors that disrupt the messages about how hungry we are, whether we should eat or what we should eat. Uh, either eating too much or too little depends on how we're physically responding to these factors. Pregnancy, right? The first three months of pregnancy really jacks up with what you're going to eat or what you're not going to eat, right? You feel gross, but maybe if I eat, I'll make it feel better. Depression, huge, serious thing. Uh, eating too much or eating too little because of how you're interacting with this depression. Uh, Richard, I guarantee you, we were talking about exercise, guarantee you that Richard used exercise as an example to talk about alpining. And so when you're out in the wilderness and you're at too high of an elevation, you know, you really should eat because you're burning all these calories, but you're not hungry, and so it becomes a dangerous situation. That is something that interrupts very serious. Another thing that interrupts is when you're backpacking and you get giardia. Uh, that can also happen and interrupt your experience. So Richard's experience is alpining. My experience is giardia. Parasites, no, no bueno. Uh, food is something that we so naturally think about all the time 
but it doesn't necessarily hit our radar as out of the norm that we think about it 10 to 12 times a day until something major happens, until something catches our attention, is said or done. For all of you out there who have ever been diagnosed as gluten or dairy-free, right, that was your moment, right? All of a sudden, you read every label. You talk to everybody. What was in this? Like, can I actually see the packaging? Once you find out, food, like, even more so is on your radar. In John 6, the chapter that we're looking at today, Jesus says something extreme enough to catch everyone's attention. In verse 53 of 6, he says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's a bit extreme, kind of gross, uh, a bit graphic. It's definitely not kosher. Uh, it's graphic, and Jesus is trying to catch the hearer's attention because they had set the bar too low for who the Messiah would be and therefore who Jesus could or should be. So in chapter 6, John writes a three-act play to highlight how low the bar had gotten set, how Jesus invites everyone to aim higher, and then what we're to do with that invitation. So essentially these three acts are act one, Jesus' rise to popularity. Act two, Jesus clarifies his invitation. And act three, some people depart. So act one, Jesus' rise to popularity. In the timeline of the Gospel of John, when we get to chapter six, the word has like gotten out about Jesus and his miracles. So now throngs of people are following him as best they can, as, as getting as close to him as possible. He's talked to the Samaritan woman at the well, so now a whole bunch of Samaritans have come to believe. He's been doing some healing, been doing some teaching. And as we enter into the beginning part of, of chapter six, these great crowds are following him because they know what he can do. And they've heard of all of these miracles. And now in the beginning of six, he feeds the 5,000 with these five loaves and two fish. So of course, right, the crowd loves this. This is so awesome. It's like when you finally go to a new restaurant that your friend has been telling you about as being so good. And then when you get there, it's not only good, it's great. But then they comp the meal, right? Or the friend that invited you ends up paying for it, right? It doesn't get any better than this. They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to hear Jesus, and they did get to see and hear Jesus, but thus far they had not been a part of a miracle, at least the vast majority of them, and they get to be a part of a miracle. This is huge. So exciting makes him rather popular with folks. Two big ingredients are contributing to his popularity thus far. One is he's giving out free stuff. Who doesn't love that, right? Like if you know there's a big giveaway, you're like, I'm on it, I'm there. He's meeting some basic physical needs. He's healing the sick, giving mobility to the lame, and feeding the hungry. And if you think that today we think a lot about food, even though we have the ability to eat virtually instantaneously without any prep, you can just imagine what a profound miracle it would have been to have instant food for something that you didn't do anything for, right? These people live in the desert. They are surrounded by heat, and artificial refrigeration is not going to be invented for another 1,700 years. Like, this is a very big deal that they just get to eat right then without prepping something from scratch. But it's a big deal today. Hospitality through the form of food is a really big deal today. 
food and meeting people's physical needs is underestimated sometimes as being a front door to an encounter with Jesus. At Bethany, we have the food bank, we have the community meal, we have the Tabitha overnight shelter, all of which have food associated with it, right? We want to be hospitable. We want to say, we've been thinking about you. Hey, come, be in this place, sit, eat. It's huge, something that makes a very big impact. Even thinking about groups that you go to, right? Of, of course you want to go if there's food. Of course you want to go even if you have to bring some food. Food just makes a really big deal. This is how Jesus started his ministry, by caring for people's physical needs. And I think we should continue doing that ministry. Matthew 10, 42 says that you are rewarded even if you give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. It's a big deal to meet people's physical needs. So part of his popularity is because that's what he's doing. He's meeting physical and material needs. Another part of his popularity is because they don't really know who he is, so really he can be anybody that they decide he could or should be. In verse 14 and 15, this is right after the, the feeding of the 5,000, they, they, after the people saw the miracle, miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who would come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain. So in these two verses, they think, oh, he's a prophet, oh, he's a king. In verse 25, when, he, when they catch back up to him because he takes off, walking on water. Uh, but when they catch back up, they say, rabbi. So they, they think he's a teacher of some sort. Within a 24-hour span of time, the crowd is identifying him as a prophet, a king, a teacher, which are all very different job descriptions, right? Like, who is he? They don't really know who he is. They're interacting with him, don't know, so they just keep assigning things to him to see what sticks. Part of the reason that they don't know is because they don't have a framework for who the Messiah will be. In Matthew 16, verses 13 to 14, uh, Jesus says, came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So they don't, they're just kind of grasping at what they know to try to figure out what they don't know, to try to find a box that fits. So they refer to Moses or Elijah, John the Baptist, other prophets and teachers, because who is this guy? And while all of these historical Jewish spiritual giants are incredible and they all point the way to the Messiah, Jesus, as we'll see in Act 2, is not pointing to the Messiah. He's saying, no, I'm the Messiah. The Messiah is here right now. But if they think he's just a prophet, just a king, just a teacher, then their expectations are too low. It's like they're asking for a free meal to go to like the deli counter at Safeway because they have no frame of reference of what canless is, right? They just have no frame of reference. So Jesus gets to the root of the issue in verses 26 and 27. He says, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. 
Jesus sees that they, what they want from the Messiah is stuff. But that's not grand enough. That's not big enough. It's not daring enough. It's just limited to their stomachs, limited to perhaps a political agenda rather than what Jesus is really offering them. So he begins this discourse by asking them, what are you looking for? Why do you really seek Jesus? Of course, he's Jesus, so he knows the answer. He knows what's in their heart. He says, you're here because yesterday I filled your stomachs. They have a name for this type of relationship. It's called a sugar daddy. Usually not the kind of relationship that we would typically want to pursue, but it's someone who's in a relationship because of the stuff that they provide. They're looking for the wrong things. They're looking for the wrong kind of food. They're expecting far less out of Jesus than what he's offering. The day before, they had eaten and had their fill. There was 12 baskets of leftovers. But now, the next day, they're hungry again, and so they're back. And they just want more because they're eating the wrong food. Every now and then, especially when I'm stressed, I get these stomach pains. And typically, uh, to to help these stomach pains, I take four white homeopathic pills. And if you know, I wait 30 minutes. If that doesn't work, then I've self-prescribed that I will take four more white homeopathic pills uh, because you know what could hurt? They're homeopathic. The the last time this happened, I took my four white homeopathic pills. Waited 30 minutes. Nothing happened. So I was like, okay, we'll take four more. So I took four more, waited 30 minutes, and nothing happened, like, but I actually started to feel worse, right? Like, my stomach pain increased. Uh, like, some other negative physical things were beginning to happen that I will spare you from. So I concluded, obviously, well, clearly these pills don't work anymore. Like, I must have outgrown them, or maybe this stomach pain has changed. Like, this doesn't work. Uh, so the next morning when I got up to take my daily vitamins, I I realized that the night before, instead of taking the helping white stomach pills that I usually take, I had accidentally taken calcium magnesium, which is also a white pill uh, in my defense. So though normally I take two uh, calcium magnesium a day, which I had taken that morning, I also additionally took eight calcium magnesium pills. Uh, And I thought that my stomach pills weren't working anymore, that they weren't going to give me the relief that I needed. And, and in fact, the whole time I was eating the wrong thing, right? Like I knew there were white pills, white pill, white pill, but I didn't really take a look at the bottle that I was pouring from. Jesus doesn't want to just fill stomachs again and again, but to give us a frame of reference of what food and water will satisfy so that we will never be hungry and thirsty again. The church father, Augustine, refers to this passage with lament. He says that so many seek Jesus because what they truly, truly want is just a temporary benefit, that they don't want the much more that Jesus is offering. I think the vast majority of us in this room don't necessarily identify with this great crowd of wondering where our next meal is going to come from. But we can easily, just as easily, look for the temporary benefit rather than the long benefit. We also could have our own political agenda that we're hoping Jesus fulfills. We all, like, he's a great resource, right? Anytime I'm stressed or overwhelmed, he provides reassurance and calm. Covers a vast majority, if not all, of our physical or material needs. 
maybe we feel safe with Jesus, or maybe because we follow Jesus because we're supposed to. We've just always done that. We don't want to have that conversation with someone in our life who thinks that we also should. So the question remains, why do we seek Jesus? What do we want from him? Do we want just the temporary benefit? Act two, Jesus clarifies his invitation. So seeing that the people don't yet get what Jesus is offering and are stuck thinking that the best that they can get is a bunch of free meals, just like their ancestors did from the sky in the form of manna, Jesus clarifies what he's offering to them. Again, this entire chapter, I'm glad that you have your Bibles open if you do, because it's really quite repetitive. Oftentimes, they ask a question that Jesus answered in the previous place, so you have to go back. It's like a normal conversation where you're like, I already said that. You just weren't listening when I first said that. So in verses 48 to 51, he says the exact same thing that he said in, chapter, or in verse 35, where he says, 48 to 30, 51, uh, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He's essentially saying you'll never be hungry again. You can have eternal life through me. But to get to this, you have to eat the bread that is me. If the, if the first question is, why do we seek Jesus? Then I think logically the second question would be, well, if I did want to, what does it mean if I need to eat Jesus as the bread? Conveniently, her earlier answers this question. In 28 to 29, they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You might note that they said, what must we do? And he answers, well, the work of God is to believe. We don't have time to really go into it. It's a much longer conversation, which I would love to have with any of you at any point. But Jesus is clarifying that even our belief is a gift from God that all we have to do is believe in Jesus. Have faith that the bread of life that Jesus is, is a gift that Jesus is offering. It's not earned in any way. So what do we have faith in? What are we trusting? That the work that Jesus did on the cross really happened. That, all those, that in those moments on the cross, grace was offered to everyone. And that to those who receive the work of God, they will believe and have eternal life. And eternal life doesn't mean that your heart will never stop dying or never stop beating, that you'll be kind of stuck with this setup for the rest of your life. Uh, if you know anything about Wolverine or the Highlander, you know that can be like bring its own set of problems. But Jesus is referring to what in Greek they say zoe. This is the noun version of the word life. It's not referring to whether we breathe or not, but all the things we long for that speak life to us, that really is the core of our human hearts, that there's meaning in what's happening further than what we can see, that one day we will experience true and lasting peace, 
that the nastiness of life will be redeemed. Our longings to be fully known and fully accepted, no matter what our brokenness looks like, will be met. That there would be no more marginalized people, especially none made marginalized by another group of people. Where everyone would be seen and respected for bearing the image of God rather than the color of their skin or the amount of money in their pocketbook. This is what Christ is inviting us into. A hunger for righteousness. And this hunger that if you follow, that those who, who let this longing take root, and it doesn't really matter where you start following or where you jump in with these longings, all of them will lead you to the feet of Jesus. The good news is that once you trust, you don't get like just a part of the gift, you get the whole thing straight away. The entire gift, the whole treasure. The first step is to trust And out of this fundamental trust will come whatever other good works that God will direct us to. But the work of God that we want to fulfill is simply to trust Jesus as the one God sent. I would say the bad news, but I don't even think it's really bad news. It's just more the realistic news. The other side of the coin is that no matter how long you've had this gift, and many of us have had this gift for years, we can still get tripped up, right? We can get sucked into these corrupted versions of life, this Zoe life. When we forget that things like how much money we have in the bank or how much people like us or how valuable we are to society, that those are all perfectly fine, but they're not life. They're not this life that God's inviting us to. Again, they're parts of life and they're can be fine in and of themselves, but at certain points we all forget and start pursuing these things on accident rather than pursuing Christ. Thankfully, Jesus makes clear in both, in both verse 50 and 51 that the bread came down from heaven. He uses the present active, that the gift is coming down right now, that the gift will keep coming down. It's always being offered, always changing us, Jesus helps us to learn in the moment, but then he also helps us to continue to learn. I went to the tree lighting at Westlake last Friday with my family, and two protests were going on that day. I didn't know there were protests until I got down there. And I'm not a protester simply by personality. Like, there's no other reason. Uh, It's not that I, I don't feel very strongly about social issues. I do, and I tell them to a very small group of people, uh, but I have lots of opinions, but it's just in my like wiring of who I am that I have an aversion to like mobs of people. Like I, I don't like that. Uh, even, I mean, five days earlier, I'd gone to my first Seahawks game and at that place, I couldn't make myself yell either Sea or Hawks, which if you've ever been to a game, which probably you haven't or else you'd be watching right now, but, uh, If you haven't been to the game, let me tell you, they do that quite a bit. Uh, Yell, this sea or hawks. And I was like, why do I have to do that? Like, this is making me uncomfortable. Obviously, they know I'm here, like, to root for them. When they do something good, I cheer. But I'm not just going to yell, sea or hawks this whole time. And I got a little bit of flack from that from my friends. But I was like, I just don't like doing it. Like, this is making me uncomfortable. Feel free to do it. I don't want to do it. So there's no like moral value about whether or not I'm a protester in my personality or whether or not I cheer at sporting events, like no moral value, right? But what does really matter to me is that I'm committed to Christ first and foremost. 
that his version of life is what's most important to me. And I don't want to become more committed to my quirky personality traits just because they help me feel more comfortable. I want to be a part of anything that helps bring pictures of eternal life to earth, which means that when something unjust comes up, I don't want to immediately respond with, well, I'm not a protester. Like, that's not me. Instead, I want to ask, God, what do you want me to do out of this? How do you want me to respond? And if he says, protest, I'll be like, let me double check that one more time because I will be extremely uncomfortable if I have to do that. But I want to do that because I trust Jesus, not because I want to feel comfortable. Good theology is filled with paradox. When we say yes to Jesus, when we say yes to taking his free gift, we begin to be like him in ways that we are not yet currently. Uh, the Women's Thursday Bible Study uh, just wrapped up this uh, Bible study on, on uh, Philippians. The men's Bible study did too, but I never get to go to that one. Uh, but we just wrapped up, and in Philippians 4, verse 13, Paul says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, referring to Christ, which uh, we were talking about on, on Thursday because it just cracks me up that Paul says, I can do everything when someone else does it through me, which I'm like, well, I think that's all of us, right? Like, I can do it all if somebody else does it. Easy. Cake. The good news is that somebody else has already done it. Jesus on the cross. That's the only way that Paul can make this crazy statement of, I can do all things when someone else does it through me, is that God already did it through, is already doing it through him. He's saying yes to God, and God's the one who's doing the work. All Paul has to do is receive the gift. All we have to do is receive the gift. There's all these fantastical stories, and one of my pet peeves as uh, pastors, when you listen to a message and they're like, and then this person heard a word from the Lord and moved across the world to serve him. And I'm like, great, that one person did it. The majority of us are probably not going to do that, which it is awesome when that happens. If that happens to you, great. Um, but it's just not very common. And so if that's not currently your situation, I think a good place to start in asking this question, where do I need to trust? Where is God calling me to trust a little bit more? Is whether individually or as a church, there are places that we're totally inflexible. That we're like, no, I've thought about this. I've decided that's not me. That's not what I do that we've cemented a perspective on something for whatever reason. It makes us feel safe. It's just not anything that we've done before, or we don't need to do it because other people are doing it. I think these are really good topics of conversation to have with the Lord. For some of us, there aren't maybe as many firm decisions in your life or firm convictions as perhaps you need to have. And so a good conversation would be, where do I need to add some? Others, we've got this firm decision list, right? And maybe there's a few that God wants to cross off of that list. The hope I'd have for myself and all of us is that we check in with God to see what those lists look like and if they should look like that right now. If there's some things we need to put on the list, if there's some things that we need to take off the list. But it's really hard, right? God is saying here, Jesus is saying here, you just have to trust. And you're like, ugh, but very hard. It's tough. So act three, the departure. When Jesus makes it clear that he's offering folks his whole self, true satisfaction, 
they start grumbling and say this is hard, which we concur. Uh, in verses 66 to 69, many turn back and stop following him. And these aren't people who like just showed up and they're like, not for me. These are his disciples, people who had been following him. And when they hear this teaching, they're like, I'm out. This is no longer for me because it is hard. Jesus is offering everything, but in return, he's asking for everything. He's asking for their, he's asking for our whole lives, that we would let nothing else define us. Theoretically, given that we've lived enough years, it should be easy to choose Christ since we have practical proof that everything the world has to offer us is fulfilling and satisfying, but really only up to a point. Whether it's having influence of something or thriving in your career, having education, money, traveling, getting recognition for being good at something or physical intimacy, all of these things are awesome, but only to a point. They aren't enough for us. Just pick any one of those categories. When you've had any sort of success in those categories, you know as soon as you've had that success that you need more success, right? Like, well, I got this one promotion, but there's the next promotion, this is our version of asking for another meal. It's so much short. It's, such a, uh, sh it's shorter than what God wants for us. It's not eternal life. Instead, at least my experience is that the more we pursue these things as our life's goal, the more restless we become, the more bored we get with the very thing that we thought was our life, the thing that we loved, and of course we get it, it's tough. Jesus wants it all. Some people left because it was too costly. And Peter says in verse 69, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. There really are two types of tasting. There's kind of the tasting like to try something, right? You probably grew up with this from your, one of your parents who loved you said like, hey, just try this. Like just take a taste of it, which fun fact you should because apparently your taste buds taste every 15 years, so you should try stuff again. But tasting to just like try something and, and see. But then there's also tasting like tasting in your taste buds, right? So you've got a big old meal going down and you taste it as it goes by. You're eating a full meal already. So there, there really is two types. And depending on where you are today, God might be stirring in you to try him. Just taste him and see if it works. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just try and see if the Lord is good. Or he might be inviting you to eat the meal that you are already eating, but to do it in a little bit of a different way, to add somebody to your table to eat alongside of you that isn't there currently, or to eat more slowly, knowing that you don't need to have anxiety about whether there's going to be enough or not, that there's going to be plenty. Or it could be something else. The Holy Spirit is very creative and gives a ton of ideas. But, but I think at the end of the day, the point is, is that all of us have some room to grow in the ways in which we trust Jesus. Or it could be that God is calling you, inviting you to start reading the labels of the things that you're putting in your body. Just as those with dairy or gluten, allergies, sensitivities, read the label because they know essentially that they're putting toxins into their bodies. It's not good for them. It won't be a good fit. 
are there toxins that you're putting into your own body, whether that's physically or more on a metaphorical level? Would you be willing to trust Jesus and give that up and see what else he has to offer you? What other life he has to offer you? As we enter into communion tonight and taste this, the words of Dale Bruner, who is a biblical scholar and someone I admire greatly, he says this in response to John 6. Jesus is not at all trying to make his salvation harder with this teaching in John 6. No, he's trying to make it easier and more accessible. He not only wants to talk to us, but to touch us. He not only wants to make an impression on our hearts and minds, but he wants to reach our bodies. He wants to make himself even more accessible to our trusting and coming to him. He knew that we need not only spiritual things, but also physical things in order to grasp him more easily, to come to him more specifically. Just look at Jesus' incarnation. In communion, we have one of these physical things to help us grasp on to God again. We can get up out of our seats, obviously a very physical thing, and with our actions, say yes to trusting Jesus, either trusting him again, trusting him for the first time, trusting him a little bit more. But before you come, I would really encourage you to just take a second and check in with him. The questions that he asks in John 6 are, what do you want from me? And will you trust me with all of it? Those are pretty profound questions. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, they are such easy questions, but such hard answers to live out. Lord, we thank you that you have mercy on us. We thank you that you do the work, and we just have to say yes. Lord, that is a miracle in and of itself. Please meet us in this place. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come forward, to take your body, to take your blood, and to participate in the work that you did on the cross. In your name.